Welcome to The Aggressive Life. Today, we're going to talk about a divisive topic. Why not? Why not be a little more divisive on The on the Aggressive Life? The divisive topic is parenting. Now, why is that divisive? Well, for two reasons. One, don't feel like talking about kids because I don't have kids. The other reason it can be very difficult is because, I've learned this from personal experience, nobody wants unsolicited parenting advice. I mean, of all the things you want, there's number one, I don't want a venereal disease. And number two, I don't want unsolicited parenting advice. And yet I've run across this woman's work who we're going to have here on The Aggressive Life today, Erica Commissar. And I've been very stimulated by it. It's been, it's been really, really good. If you've got kids at home, you know that you want all the help you can get. And she has found a lot of things to actually help you. She has a new book called Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents and the New Age of Anxiety. It's cultivated from over 30 years in private practice in New York City. She's a regular opinion contributor on the Wall Street Journal, which is where I first found out about her, and the Washington Post, and has appeared on nearly every major news outlet. She's used her expertise in depression, anxiety, compulsive disorders to help hundreds of families and raise three teenage young adult children herself. And she's going to help us all today. Welcome to The Aggressive Life, Erica Commissar. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. I, you know, I, I did that thing at the beginning about anxiety and depression. I mean, people don't want to hear about that, but people are having it. What What, what is it, Erica, right now? Let's just hit the pause button on on parenting. It seems to me that we're more depressed and anxious than ever. Is this just my spidey sense or is there verifiable uh, data out there to support that? Well, I mean, it, I think there is more depression and anxiety than ever before. You'd say the, the rise in anxiety and depression has everything to do with the fact that the world is a scarier place, a more worrisome place, but that really isn't the cause of it. You'd say our foundation is not good. So if you don't build a house with a good foundation, then when adversity comes, sort of, it's the old story of the three little pigs, right? Um, the pig who built the house of, of brick when the storm came, uh, the house withstood the adversity, the storm. The problem is that we are sending our kids into um, adolescence and young adulthood and adulthood without a solid, securely emotional foundation. And that means that when adversity comes, we're more susceptible, we're more fragile. So what you're finding is a more fragile population. So the foundation isn't strong right now. Are you saying it was stronger like when? When was it stronger and what happened to erode our foundation? Well, so the first book I wrote was called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. And it could have easily been called the neuroscience of attachment. So we know that secure emotional attachment in the early years um, really sets the, the stage for stability going forward. And that's, you know, that's stability, which accounts for a good amount of adversity. The more adversity we face, the greater the stability needs to be. I mean, there is a proportionate kind of need here, which is if we're going to have all of these 
extreme adversities that we're facing, you know, uh, global warming fears, if we're going to have intense competition and academic pressure on our kids, if we're going to have the pressure of social media, which, you know, um, lengthens a period of development in, in adolescents' brains that isn't a good lengthening. Um, and I can talk to you specifically about that. Um, you know, if we're going to have economic instability, which we have, and economic disparity, if we're going to have political instability, I mean, all of these things are overwhelming to adults who have had a good foundation. Now imagine what it's like for a neurologically fragile child and we say there are two critical windows of development for children, zero to three and nine to 25, which is adolescence. Most people think adolescence is, is like 12 to 19, but it's actually from a neurological perspective, nine to 25. Those two critical windows of development mean the kids are more susceptible to stress in those periods. But it also means that you, you can have a great influence on them in these two critical windows of development to create that emotional stability and security that means that they're more like a house of bricks when the adversity comes and the worries come than if they built a less secure foundation. You're saying the instability of our times coupled with parents not as emotionally engaged? Emotionally and physically disengaged. And that, I, that doesn't seem possible to me. It seems like every parent is bending over backwards and shuttling their kids to more events and spending more time with them and taking more personal days with kids than, than ever before. And you're saying that's not true? No, no, it's not true. There was a, it was a big rise. Again, it's, these things aren't causative, they're correlative. So there was a huge rise in two working person families. And you asked me what could have contributed to it. Um, you know, I mean, in a way that's good, that's good for women, that's good for families. They have more economic, you know, sort of resources. It wasn't good for children. It was a terrible thing for children. Uh, children were put into institutional care, daycare, which is institutional care. They were ripped from secure attachment at an earlier stage. I mean, kids are put into daycare in this country as early as two weeks. Um, you know, the idea is from zero to three, children need as much as possible to have physically and emotionally present uh, secure attachment figures. That could be a mother. We know that can be a father. Uh, the good news is my second book talks about, well, if you miss that first window of development, you can still do something about it as a parent because the brain is reorganizing, it's pruning, it's, it's, it's kind of working out a lot of its kinks again, which means it's vulnerable to you and your influence. Between 9 to 25, you can repair a lot of what you didn't get to in the first three years. All right, so let, let me push on you a little bit. Not, not that I necessarily disagree with you. I want, I want to make sure I'm getting out of you what you're saying. And, and I can just sense that there's people who are clued in who have got a highly disagree or else have high degrees of shame. It sounds like you're saying that you got to have a stay-at-home parent or you're screwed. No, you have to have as much as possible. And what I say is, more is more. You know, with some things, more isn't more. Uh, in this case, more is more. The more emotional and physical presence you have from your parents or your emotionally secure attachment figure. 
So it's not both parents. There's really one parent who is really the go-to person when that child is in distress. And if you ever doubt that, you do an experiment. You two parents stand side by side when a child falls down. Which parent are they seeking comfort from? Hmm. That's the emotional, securely attached connection, right? Yeah, interesting. So, um, and it's not both parents. So, as much as parents want to go back and forth and say, "Oh, there's two, you know, alternative attachment figures," and some people even in the attachment world will say that, but there's always a go-to person, their rock, if you will, uh, who they go to when they're in distress. And by the way, both parents are important to the emotional stability of a child, but they're just different, meaning their their function is different. They serve different functions to that child emotionally. Um, but no, that's not. Not true. You can work. You can have two parents who work, but you have to work your work around your child's needs, not around your needs. And that we stopped doing that in this culture. We started saying individual needs, adults matter, our needs matter, and we started putting children's needs on the back burner. And we started treating children like objects, saying. Anybody can take care of a baby. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I go to a cocktail party or people stop me and say, but does it really matter? I mean, nothing's happening in an infant. There's just nothing. They're just blobs. And who cares who takes care as long as, as, long as somebody's taking care of them? Absolutely matters who's taking care. I mean, there's only one secure attachment and they're not blobs. They are developing one million neural connections a second one million neural connections a second in the first three years. I guess you're hanging out with different parents that I'm seeing, or you're looking at dad, or I'm looking at folks. The folks, people I look at, their whole world revolves around their kid. Like their whole world, they 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 don't have guys night out. They don't. Uh, they never take vacations just with their spouse. They. Um, you know, they're carting them everywhere. They've got the bags under their eyes to prove it. I, I just, I don't, I don't see parents, at least in my neck of the woods, treating them like blobs. I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just going, man, I feel like I say too often to parents, you got, you do have to take care of yourself. Cause I, I see everybody putting life on hold for their kids, which you should actually, you know. But that's not the societal trend. Uh, so, so what I say to parents is you can be physically present and be emotionally misattuned, meaning yes. not present emotionally. So you can be physically there and be unable to reflect your child's emotion and cope with their distress. So one thing I can say is parents can be there physically and not be there emotionally. They cannot be there emotionally if they're not there physically. We know that. But you can be there as a body meeting all your children's perfunctory needs, but still not be there emotionally. So in my both of my books, I talk about what is emotional presence? How do you define emotional presence? And that is the ability to meet your children where they are emotionally, not impose your emotions on them, be able to hear their distress, be able to handle their distress. Many parents can't handle their children's pain, so they dismiss it, they ignore it, they silence it, uh, they cheer them up, they try to... Mm. Right. So the idea is we don't right. cheer up children. We don't want to fix emotions. We want to hear their emotions. We want to meet them where they are emotionally and do what we call mirroring. So there are these wonderful things called mirror neurons, which we're born with. Babies are born with, which is the ability to look at a mother's face. And if the mother is smiling, to smile back. 
if the mother's sad, the baby gets sad, like in a mirror, like looking at yourself in a mirror. The baby learns- I find myself doing that with you right now. Yes. I'll look at you on Zoom. You smile, I smile. That's right. That's a mirror. So now a baby learns that if the mother is an attuned mother, if the father also is an emotionally attuned uh, uh, parent, then the baby learns that if they're sad, that the mother's face will get sad. Like you just said, I was smiling, you were smiling. If I looked sad and I was telling you something sad, then you would get sad. So that connection between a parent and a baby is the foundation that I'm talking about. It's what we call emotionally secure sort of foundation. But in addition to that mirroring, children need to emotionally refuel throughout their childhood. It's not just zero to three, and it's not just nine to 25. It is throughout. Think of an electric car with a very small battery. That's how I would put it. If you had an electric car with a very small battery, you'd have to find a charging station pretty darn quick. The younger the child, the smaller the battery. And so that means they need to go and recharge. They need to get a hug. They need to look at their mother's eyes or their father's eyes. They need to be reassured. They need to feel safe and secure. Then they can go out into the world and explore again. Zero to three, their batteries are very small, back and forth and back and forth all day long, right? When they're in distress, getting a snuggle, and then they go out and they can feel resilient again. That's, that is the foundation of resilience, right? In adolescence, it gets, the batteries get small again. So it gets bigger in like five to eight. There's suddenly this kind of blossoming of what seems like a little more experimentation, the ability to explore the world, longer periods of time, they're in school, then at nine, and they need you again in a very similar way to zero to three. Hmm. So is there anything else happening before we leave this topic, anything else happening in the depression, anxiety epidemic that you want to speak to in the midst of your work? Yes. I mean, so many environmental things that we've imposed on children in a harsher way than ever before. So there is a lot of the new book is all about the brain development uh, in adolescence. There is a lot going on in their right or social emotional brain in adolescence. And that means that they're more vulnerable to certain things than they were maybe from five to eight or nine. Um, And some of those things are criticism. They're very, very, very susceptible to criticism because the part of the brain called the amygdala, tiny little almond shaped part of the brain, the oldest part of the right brain, social emotional brain, is in a very hypervigilant mode. That means it's very highly active. It's called the threat sensing part of the brain. So when a teenager senses threat of any kind, it is amplified in their brain in a way that it is not amplified as much in an adult brain. So what we've done is we've created a world in which everything is over the top. Academic pressure is over the top. Social media is over the top on all the time. Job insecurity, over the top. We're telling our college kids when they get out of school, when I got out of school, I got a secretarial job, as everybody did. We all called ourselves assistants. Basically, we were secretaries. But there were jobs for us. These kids don't have jobs when they come out of college. They're doing internships for free or they're depressed because they're not able to go to the next step in terms of economic independence. So 
Everything is over the top. They have too many choices. In my generation, we didn't have nearly as many choices of as many colleges or as many job or career possibilities. Um, everything is over the top now. And what that does is it makes the world an untenable place for them to live. So the overstimulation of our world, coupled with a battery that hasn't been charged there you go. due to non-empathic connections with your parents is a That's Molotov it. cocktail. Yeah. I hadn't thought so much about the number of choices for people in their 20s, like you just mentioned. I mean, I've thought before about social media and... Uh, you know, just how everything is amped up. I mean, churches are amped up, and that's my day job. I'm a pastor. Yeah, we're we're absolutely amped up over what we've been 30 years ago. God bless America. It's awesome. I like it that way. But I've thought about before, like my my son when he graduated college. There were all these people who had all these crazy things they were doing that, for me, my generation, we never ever considered that. Like we never considered, hey, I'm going to graduate and I'm going to ride my motorcycle around the world. I'm going to graduate and I'm going to walk the Appalachian Trail. I'm going to I'm going to graduate and I'm going to take a gap year, which basically means I guess I I get, I get high all year in my parents' basement. What, you know, whatever that means. There wasn't options. It was like I graduate, I find a job, I guess start going going life. And and part of me is jealous of today's 20-somethings who has these ideas that none of us had. Part of me is like, I'm jealous. I wish I would have thought of that. But then part of me is like, no, man, I'm I'm glad I got on with my life. And now I'm hearing you say, it's probably good I didn't have that because those choices would have stressed me out or I would have been stressed out seeing other people take advantage of choices that I couldn't do. That's exactly right. You know, an example of too many choices is career choices. I mean, you know, in, in my day, you had a set number of careers or graduate school. And now the world is so complicated and so specialized. And there are so many choices that kids come to me literally in college, college age kids and say, I'm so overwhelmed. I have no idea who I am or what I want to do. Right. That's the whole, the whole passion cult. I have to, I have right. to follow my passion. I've got to do something that is going to change the world. I've got to actualize myself. And now, now you might be able to do that when you're really great at something and you're 45, start to go into that area. But no, what's wrong with the good old fashioned, I'm going to pay the bills and enjoy my life. Well, that's right. And, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert, the writer, Elizabeth Gilbert, I remember she was on a podcast or she was, it was an interview and she talked about how she got into a little bit of trouble because she had talked about everybody needs to find their passion in one of her interviews or one of her books. And she had to retract it and say, not everybody has a passion. Some people don't have a passion. Some people find contentment, but they don't find passion. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. There isn't passion for everybody. And the other thing is to feel the pressure to find your calling when you're 20 years old yes. is such a, yes. again, it's, it's, it's adultamorphizing. That's a word I made up. It's projecting onto young children and to adolescents adult-like characteristics. Um, we are expecting teenagers who are emotionally and neurologically vulnerable to be straight-A students and then have 20 activities and fill out their college applications and get perfect scores on their ACTs and get into a good college. I mean, it's just mind-blowing what we are asking of these kids. 
And that was not asked of our generation. When I wanted to go to college, I applied to two colleges. They weren't particularly exceptional colleges at that time. They were easy to get into. It was a one-page application. I got a terrible score on my SAT. My parents put no pressure on me. And I found myself after college. And so we, are re- we have really created an untenable amount of stress uh, that these kids are living around. You got a terrible store, uh, score on your SAT. So did I. I promise you, mine's lower than yours. <laughs> Probably not. Oh, oh, come on. Because in those days, it didn't matter. What mattered is that you went to college and you did as well as you could do. You did as well as you could do in high school. You got into a decent college, but you you knew you'd your parents kind of had faith that life unfolds, not that you have to. And, you know, the problem today, too. Right. That's right. That's Parents right. are anxious. Parents are yes. Terribly, yes. terribly anxious that their children will not be successful, that they won't get good jobs. They won't make a lot of money. Right. They won't be at the highest. Le- and this right. is being what passed down what we call generationally. We call a generational expression of, of anxiety and depression. We have a lot of depressed and anxious parents that are passing yep. it down to their children. And if you want to do a little litmus test right now for the listeners who may be, as you said, I might have put their hackles up with a lot of this stuff, is I want you to ask yourself, how do you sleep, all you adults who are listening? Do you take Ambien? Do you have trouble falling asleep? Do you have trouble staying asleep? Do you drink alcohol to go to sleep? How many times a week do you drink alcohol to go to sleep, right? Most adults today have a terrible time sleeping and sleep is the first place that we see signs of mental health issues. It is the first place we look. First thing we say in our assessment of a patient is, are you sleeping? Do you fall asleep easily? How many hours of sleep do you get? Do you have to take any substances to fall asleep? And I'm going to, I would guarantee that if we did a survey of your listeners right now, at least 50% of them would say they have sleep issues. We are passing anxiety and depression down to our children. No one's asking why we as adults have it. Um, And that's the problem. I, I talk to people all the time who don't get, don't get good sleep. And I always go immediately to things like, what time are you going to bed? Are you keeping your phone by your by your nightstand? Are you all those kind of physical things? But you're saying the first line of someone isn't sleeping. It's really as simple as you're too stressed out in life. You're taking your life too seriously. You're not dealing with your anxiousness very well. You have too high of standards for yourself. You have those kind of things. Is that what you're saying? Sleep is the first place we look for signs of unresolved conflict. So anxiety and depression are nothing more than unresolved conflict. And when we're busy during the day, we often don't deal with our conflicts. And then at night, when it gets quiet and all the busyness of the day goes away, that's when we're left with ourselves and we're left with our our anger, our sadness, our angst, um, our worries. And that's when they all come crashing down on us. I like that. Unresolved conflict. That's really good, Erica. All right. You've said something else that is, (laughs) I thought was uh, very head turning. You said that our kids, when they're stressed out, we've taken away one of the key alleviators of stress. And that is we've taken away the understanding of God. 
because, you know, for me, whenever I am down and I'm feeling alone, me for my faith system, I, I go, oh, stop, hold on, hold on. There's an entity who loves me and has created me, and there's an X factor to my life because of his presence and his spirit dwelling inside of me. Let's try to think of that because I am not alone. Instead of, I'm a random amalgamation of proteins and there was cosmic goo and then there's you. And so therefore, why should you be afraid? Why? Because you're alone. So very alone. That's why. You, you, you say for parents who struggle with a belief for God, it's time for them to lie to their kids, right? Or wrong? Yes. Truth and advertising. I am a person of faith. I'm Jewish, um, but I am a person of faith. And um, But I'm also a psychoanalyst. And um, psychoanalysts often, people often feel are conflicted about faith. I am not conflicted about faith. And many psychoanalysts are not conflicted about faith. Uh, that is a myth, meaning there is a spiritual hole in many people that can't be filled with therapy alone. And it certainly can't be filled with drugs and alcohol. Um, and it can't be filled just by clinging to another person in life. It is something that is a spiritual cavity that has to be filled. So what is God? Let's talk about what God is. Now, you're a pastor, so I don't want to tell you what God is, but I'm going to tell you from a psychological perspective what God is. God is neither male nor female. God is both. God is the best parts of the best mothers and the best parts of the best fathers. Um, fathers and mothers are different, right? Mothers help us when we're in distress. They soothe our distress. And there's reasons hormonally for that. If you go to a playground or a park and you watch when a baby falls down, it's usually the mother or the primary attachment figure who goes over and says, honey, are you okay? Let me give you a hug. You're okay. It's the father who says, you're okay. Come on, let's go. You'll be fine. Pick yourself up. Let's go play, right? They're resilience building, but they're, they're, they do something else. They help with separation, but they're not as good at distress. So you have in God the best of the nurturing, distress-meeting, soothing, comforting mother and the resilience building, I'll be there for you to protect you under any circumstances. No predator is going to come and get you. Father, you mix those two together and that's God. So even though we call God, he and Judeo-Christian, and, you know, we look at the pictures in the Vatican and it's the guy with a white beard and it's God is actually the best we say like the best of the hits, right? The best of mothers and fathers. And so in a way, when we turn to that figure, we are filling that void. Something didn't get formed very early on where we haven't, we call it the internal mother. Um, it didn't get fully formed. A part didn't get fully developed. So in all of us, we need to have a source of strength and support and you know, God is one way of filling that, and it is the best of mothers and the best of fathers. So when we are facing an adversity, we have something or someone to turn to and hold us up. But for someone who's an atheist or agnostic, they can't agree with you on that. So they're supposed to do it, but they should do it anyway. You, should, you, would, you would tell them straight up, just say that to your kids and lie for yourself because your kids will be better off for it. 
Yeah, usually the people who are defensive about any spiritual part of us um, are people who have faced loss, are people who have faced um, trauma, who have been neglected, who don't have trust and faith in anything outside of themselves um, to support them. It's a defensiveness. It's a cynicism, really. But let's say... Children, if you're an atheist and that's the path you've gone down and you say, this is who I am, children have to believe in something. They need to believe in something magical. So the other thing is that when we're little, we lean into what we call magical thinking. Uh, Magical thinking is the belief that we have a lot of control when we don't have that much control. Uh, Magical thinking is the belief that there, uh, there is a protective guiding force around us that will take care of us. Um, And children need to believe in magic and they do believe in magic. Um, And so God is kind of magical. Can't see him. We can't touch him or her. It's, it's, it's an invisible entity. Um, And so it's not tangible. We can't touch it. So it, it's magical and children rely on their imagination when they're facing distressing situations or adversity. They need their imagination to get them through. It's why we call imaginary play such an important part of development. In the first five years of life, imaginary play is more important than any left brain cognitive learning they can do in school. So actually doing that with your young children is more important than reading to them. Imaginary play is how we build our internal resources. So Believing in God is all about using your imagination. It's about relying on magical thinking. And it's very important. So when you can't believe in God yourself, you need to come up with a story because you can't tell a child that when you die, they turn to dust because that is completely and absolutely psychologically, neurologically overwhelming to a child. It is unbearable. The terminal nature of that loss is just too overwhelming to them from a psychological perspective. You want to teach them your atheist teachings when they're a little bit older and they can handle it, fine. Give it to them later. But when they're small, you cannot do that to them. Yeah, and I've heard people kind of brag about them just telling the truth their kids. You know, they just go in the dark and you go away. No. All that does is scare children, you see? I mean, Mm -hmm. I think it scares a lot of atheists, too. I've known a lot of atheists who have been patients, and they have an illness. And when they get an illness and they're dying, suddenly they turn back to God because they can't bear the idea. I mean, God was a gift to human beings in terms of our ability to cope with the ultimate loss, right? It's, It's unbearable to believe that your consciousness stops and and never reappears again. It's just too scary. It's a kind of separation that adults can't even handle. So, yeah. So then you impose that on children who are so neurologically fragile and they really can't handle. So if you believe in nothing, uh, I say nihilism is a fertilizer for anxiety and it is. So you're going to just scare your children. Not only that, but just believing there's nothing out there. That's right. You'll just scare them. 
Yeah. That was nihilism. I was trying to find you. Nihilism. <laughs> See, I don't, I don't get to talk to all these kind of high-educated people all the time who, who run in rarefied air. So you're going to get me on my vocabulary game, Erica. Very good. <laughs> uh, hey, you've got, you've got a chapter in your book. I want you to go ahead and give us a little sermon on. You've given, been giving us a lot of sermons today. I'm the preacher, but you're, you're preaching really well. You've got... This, this is really rich, really rich and really, really solid. You've got a chapter in your book that uh, I, I just love the, the name of it. It's Never Too Late, Redefining Your Relationship and Repairing Old Hurts. Let's just say that we've got people on the aggressive life who have old hurts. I know everybody at the aggressive life is very healthy and self-actualized and a top 1% of emotional stability. But just, just, just imagine there's people who might accidentally find the aggressive life and they've got old hurts. What's that mean? How do they repair them? Well, I mean, therapy is one way that we repair old hurts because... Um, Well, therapy has been shown in research to reactivate parts of the brain that have been shut down. So the right brain, our right social emotional brain that I said, uh, starts its development very early, zero to three, and is in relation to those uh, connections, those relationships to your primary caretakers, right? So the right brain is responsible for emotional regulation, resilience to stress, the ability to read social cues, the ability to feel and activate empathy. These are all in the right brain. Executive functioning, judgment, these are all in the right brain. Okay. So we know that these things can be shut down in us. And when we go to therapy and we rebuild an empathic connection to a therapist, because it's not what the therapist says, it's the emotions that the, that the therapist empathizes with. It's the empathic connection that is healing. And hmm. you know, as a minister, yeah, as a pastor, that you have that ability too when someone comes to you and they've never been mirrored in their lives. They've never been understood. You know, most people in this world feel loved by their parents. I, you know, most parents, most people come into me and say, yeah, my parents love me. She's giving, she's giving air quotes in case you have to feel quote unquote love by the parents. Yes. So when they go to a therapist for the first time, some people in their lives, they feel understood. They feel as if someone doesn't judge them. They feel as if someone understands their feelings, right? When someone comes to you, you do that for them because you're in a helping profession. So that heals a part of the right brain. When we heal ourselves as parents, we can then help to heal our children. If we, are, if we do not have good self-esteem, if we do not have good self-awareness, if we cannot emotionally regulate ourselves, meaning if we are not good at regulating our own feelings, um, then if we're not resilient to stress, we cannot pass that down to our children. So the first thing I say in this book is look at yourself as a parent, be able to look in the mirror and see the strengths you have, but also the weaknesses you have and the things that you can work on in yourself by going to talk to somebody. So you can then be the rock that your child needs needs you to be. That's excellent. Erica, we're going to go in the lightning round here. 
I'm going to give you a topic. It's going to be a one-word thing. And I want you to just pull off low-hanging fruit of wisdom you want to throw away. It's called the lightning round. So it's going to be like real quick, like bam, 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 bam. You've been putting on a clinic for us today. In many ways, I feel like you're mothering some of us. You're like a very wise woman that's passing on to us some apples made of gold. Really good. So I'm going to give you some stuff and like, just bam, like give us a couple cents on it and done. Are you up for the, are you up for the lightning round, Erica Commissar? I'm, I'm a little slow and thoughtful, but I'll try. I will try. I'll, I'll be good enough because that's good enough. That's so well. Okay. Technology. Too much, too intense, too over the top, too ever present. Bullying. Um, very real, very dangerous. Um, don't leave your children to deal with it on the on their own. It's a different kind of bullying today than it was in our generation. Dealing with peer pressure. Peers are critical for adolescents to separate from their parents, but um, and for the most part, they're good. But they also uh, intensify that harshness in the brain and intensify that stimulatory part of the brain. So um, make sure that you educate your children about being their own person in the face of peer pressure. Identity. Identity is an, an ever-moving target. It is not something that is solidified till the end of adolescence, which is about 25. That means that it's, it's constantly moving. So whoever your child says they are at nine does not necessarily mean that's the person they're going to be at 25. Eating disorders. Uh, t- much too present today. Um, extreme, I think, hundred and. 12% increase in eating disorders in children under the age of 12 in the last decade, something like that. Under the uh, age of 12. Oh, under the gosh. age of 12. So it used to be just adolescents. So it's very real. It's very dangerous. Don't wait. If you see signs that your child may have an eating disorder, don't close your eyes and hope it'll go away. Address it immediately. And last one, busyness and schedules. Uh, well, we use busyness to avoid conflict, uh, to avoid internal conflicts, and we're dis- we're a distractible modern culture uh, that that is really where you'd say our brain is always on over hypervigilance is very stressed, and as a result, we don't know how to be physically and emotionally present with the people we love. Erica, this has been really rich. Is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? Oh, there's, I'll just say there's so much we didn't talk about. So I would say if you have young children, buy the first book. If you have older children and adolescents and it's about to hit you, buy the second book. And if you, even if you have a young child and you know they're going to be an adolescent by the, but there's a lot of information. Both of these books are like mental health guides for parents. Um, And there's a lot of information in both of the books. Well, let me specifically ask you to give me an advertisement. Like, tell me the name of your first book and what parents will get out of it if they read that one. And the same with the second one. Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters is the first book. And it is um, basically, as I said, the neuroscience of attachment, understanding how attachment security in the first three years of life 
will provide a foundation of mental health for your children for the rest of their lives. The second book is called Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. It is a complete and comprehensive mental health guide for parents to spot signs of trouble before it happens, prevent trouble, and then address it when it does. Erica, this has been just great, really. I've uh, I've enjoyed every moment of this. I, I might need to have you back on because you've dropped a lot of great wisdom on us. Very, very helpful. Thanks for thanks for playing along with me and some of my quirks here. Uh, some of the ways I like to jab at things and have some fun. You've been a fantastic guest. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was that was wonderful. Thank you for having me on. And hey, guys. Hey, ladies, look, look, all the stuff we heard, this is not, this is not so, oh, interesting ideas I can talk to people about next time I have a beer. That's fine if you have some conversation starters. This is about what is it that you need? You need to be aggressive about yourself. Aggression isn't about finding something wrong with everybody else and powering up on somebody. That's not what we're talking about here in the aggressive life. We're talking about taking control of your life, taking control of your mind, deciding to make changes that are good for you. Yeah, and you are actually a child before God, and he grieves for you when you're not well, when your battery's too small or it's undercharged. Do something to protect yourself. Do something to help yourself. None of us are immune to the truth and the good stuff shared today. So be aggressive. Do something about it. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. The Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.